Let's get joined up. I'm Wayne Kelly, and for new listeners, Joined Up Writing is a regular show that brings you closer to the people who write the books and stories that you love. Since 2014, I've interviewed hundreds of novelists, screenwriters, agents, and other people across the publishing and indie world about their work, their path to publication, and their tips for being happy and successful creatives. There's a huge back catalogue of episodes over at joinedupwriting.co.uk and you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, Stitcher and anywhere else you can find your podcasts. Right, cue the theme tune. Hello and welcome to the Joined Up Writing Podcast, where a little procrastination can go a long way. That's the plan anyway. I'm Wayne Kelly and it's episode 192 with Nick Bradley, author of Four Seasons in Japan, following on from his successful debut, The Cat and the City. We talk about the book within a book genre, hard work versus talent, and how you can harness the power of failure. Uh, Before we get to that, a rapid roundup of my week. Uh, last episode, I mentioned I was attending the Sheffield Doc Fest. It was a flying visit, but in just under 24 hours, I did manage to watch four films, which was intense but fun. Uh, one of the films I saw was Tish, about a working class woman from Northern England who found she had an amazing talent for street photography, particularly for capturing the poverty and hard lives of her family and the people who lived and worked in her area. And despite the sometimes tough subject matter, she also managed to find the humour and the love within the community. And it was a great record of the times that she was in. And she was also a passionate um, campaigner on social issues because she believed that art could make a difference in the real world. And originally being from a working class background myself, the film really resonated with me. Um because when you work in class, you often face people both within your own class and those outside of it. And this is particularly prevalent for those people listening at this side of the pond um, in England. As you know, we're obsessed with class. Um, but you'll often get people within your own class and, and those outside of it telling you not to pursue your passions, uh, your artistic interests. Sometimes it comes from a place of love. They worry about how you're going to pay the bills with your your painting or your music or your writing or your photography or whatever it is. And sometimes it comes from a place of just trying to keep you in your place, subconsciously or otherwise. And Tish, the subject of the film, uh, she had a mother who encouraged her to follow her, her artistic interests. And her talent was also spotted by a couple of mentors and tutors along the way who gave her the confidence and support to keep going. And again, that's something that I can relate to. My parents have always been really supportive of me wanting to write or make music or films or whatever it you know whatever it was, even though many times they had no idea how or if I could one day make a living doing any of those things, and like most people of their age and class, they were told to get a proper job as quickly as possible, start earning money, and pay your way despite that. They saw the value of education and they never made me feel like I was wasting my time pursuing a career in the arts. Now that didn't mean it didn't take me absolutely ages to get there. Just listen to the episode, I think it's 137, titled Wayne Kelly, The Man, The Myth, The Mediocrity, to see what I mean. But I've also had other people encouraging me along the way and I do really appreciate that. It was sad to see 
uh, with regards Tish. It was sad to see that she wasn't recognised properly in her lifetime. But regardless of financial gain or recognition, she remained passionate and engaged with the actual work. She did it because she felt she had to and because she loved it. And because of that, she left behind this incredible body of work, which has now, fortunately, been permanently archived by a museum, as well as having three books of her collections out in in the world. And so it's a a reminder, I think, for all of us to find the joy in the work, regardless of our success, whatever that means, And that no matter what happens, we're making stuff that will be around long after we've gone. So, um, yeah, well, geez. Here I was thinking I was going to give you a quick rundown of some of the films I saw last week. And before I know it, I'm going off on some philosophical rant about class and the power of art. Apologies, that's not why you tune in, is it? Anyway, I was suitably inspired and it was a good reminder to to appreciate what we have and to get a move on because... As the jam say in their lyric, time is short and life is cruel. So keep writing and doing what you love. And on that subject, how are you all getting on? Are your projects moving forward? Do you feel inspired or frustrated or elated maybe at finishing your latest draft? Get in touch and let me know because I do genuinely love to hear from you. You can do that by emailing wayne at waynekellywrites.com or dropping me a line on the FB page. Also, don't forget to join the email mailing list at joinedupwriting.co.uk. It's totally free and you get a couple of downloadable goodies when you sign up, and you'll be the first to find out about upcoming shows, events, workshops, and anything else that's going on. Okay, now you can relax. It's time for the real reason you turned up, today's interview with Nick Bradley. Nick was born in Germany in 1982 and grew up in Bath. After graduating with a master's degree in English literature, he moved to Japan, where he lived and worked before returning to the UK to complete a creative writing master's. Uh, He has worked in a variety of jobs, including Japanese teacher, English teacher, video game translator, travel writer and photographer. He speaks fluent Japanese and holds a PhD focusing on the figure of the cat in Japanese literature. Uh, The Cat in the City was his first novel and his second, Four Seasons in Japan, is released everywhere on June 22nd. So enjoy the chat and I'll pop back at the end to wrap things up. Okay, Nick, thanks a million for joining me on Joined Up Writing. Really appreciate it. So why don't we start off by you telling us, uh, giving us a sense of how things are going and where you're speaking from. Yeah, um, thanks very much for having me, Wayne. It's uh, it's, it's really an honour to, to come and talk on, on your podcast. Um, so at the moment, I'm um, calling in from Norwich, which is where I live these days. Alan. Alan Partridge uh, country. I suppose you get that a lot. I am of Partridge. Yes, I am. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Um, oh, that's great. Well, that's great. Well, why don't you um, tell us a little bit about your latest book, Four Seasons in Japan? Yeah. So um, Four Seasons in Japan. Um, it's it's quite, I feel like um, when I set out to write it, I thought, oh, I'm going to write something that's really simple this time because my first book was a bit complicated um but i ended up writing something complicated again <laughs> uh, it's it's a, a book within a book um so the kind of the premise of it is that um the book begins in tokyo and there's a character from my first book um an american translator called flo and she 
she's sort of begun her career as a literary translator uh but at the beginning of this new book i've written um she's kind of feeling a bit lost in life and she's not really connecting with a new project um she so she's not really feeling um a sense of love in literature that she had done previously and she's also um having a rough time with her relationship mm-hmm. and um but basically uh, a drunk guy on on the Tokyo subway drops uh, a copy of a book and she spots it and picks it up and steals it essentially um but then the reader gets to read her translation um of the book and so the book that she's translating is called Sound of Water and that book is divided up into the four seasons and sort of quite conveniently flow works on each seasonal seasonal section of the book in the corresponding season. So it kind of charts a year in the life of Flo um, and it charts the progress of her working on this book, but then also um, the struggles that she comes up against. Um, so, you know, she has to track down the elusive author of the book to get permission to, to translate it. And it becomes a kind of voyage of discovery for her. But also um, there's in, in the second, I suppose, the, the dual narrative, the bulk of the book, though, is the book within a book, which mm-hmm. is called Sound of Water and is about um, a young man from uh, Tokyo who's 19 years old. He's just failed his university entrance exams and he's um, he's from a single parent uh, family. So his father died, um, committed suicide when he was just two years old. And um, his mother, he's grown up with his mother his mother's a very busy doctor and when he fails his university entrance exams his mother sends him down to a small town in the russian prefecture on the coast called uh, onomichi and he goes to stay with his father's mother so his uh, his grandmother uh, his paternal grandmother who he's never really had a relationship with and doesn't know so um and that that book within a book is narrated from the two different perspectives uh, of the grandson and the grandmother so you like to make things nice and complicated yeah exactly yeah i told you it, i i thought oh i'm gonna sell it was gonna be such a simple book and it, it became this massive uh yes sprawling thing um but yeah i mean i think it is simple in execution when when the reader reads it they'll get it easily um, sure but it, it doesn't sound like it was very easy to write though oh it was i mean it was very difficult i'd say and one of the the main themes that the book looks at is failure and how we live past or through failure to find happiness on the other side so i'd say all all three of the characters in the book are people who've experienced failure of some form and it's about how they deal with their failures and how they move on to a kind of form of success or happiness um because success is a difficult thing to define um but yeah so uh it, yeah um, i've kind of gone off topic again no 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 that's great no you're telling us what the book's about and it sounds fantastic so do you remember what the original um sort of inspiration for it was i mean i think just knowing a little bit about your personal biography it sounds like there are some elements in there that might have sort of been uh, plucked from personal experience yeah um well yeah so i mean i suppose there's there's two two parts to that question so um it's i think this this book was born from from my own failure actually um 
so I, after I wrote The Cat in the City, my first book, I sat down and I, I wrote another book um, and I showed it to friends and they gave me the thumbs up and I showed it to my agent and he gave me the thumbs up and we sent it off to my editor and my editor said, no. <laughs> this is such a, this is becoming like such a uh, popular story. It seems to be, I've heard this now from so many writers, this yeah. very similar story, this, especially when submitting the second or the third or whatever book. Yeah. And so I, yeah, I got the, you know, the manuscript was rejected. It was about 120,000 words. And I remember the night, that night feeling really down. But then the next morning, I don't know, I just woke up and I just thought, well, if failure is something that you're feeling right now, maybe, maybe that's what you should, you should co-opt that feeling and you should tap into that when you're writing something new, because there was no question I wanted to write something else, but I felt like drawing on those very raw emotions was was the best way of generating something that was true and and real for me. So I suppose that's like the the first answer to the question that you asked. But the um, the second would be that obviously. Um, so my first book dealt with Tokyo um, mm-hmm. City, very much uh, a book about Tokyo, and I've. My first experiences of Japan, though, were this small town, Onomichi in Hiroshima Prefecture. Um, and I really always wanted to write about the countryside. So for me, it was also a kind of personal challenge to try and write about the Japanese countryside, which I'm very enamored with. And actually, I think I spent much happier days in in rural Japan than I did in, in the city, um, which could be quite isolating, quite lonely place. Um, so there was also a sense of me wanting to achieve something, which was to write a novel set in rural Japan, you know, having felt like I'd already explored the city in the first book. I think it's um, fair to say, well, at least from my personal experience, I would say in both in books and probably popular media, uh, this side of the world anyway, the, the rural side of Japan is not something that you see represented that often. Yeah, it's, no, it is usually suburban, uh, not suburban, but sort of city dwelling and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I thought about a lot of books that I really enjoyed, um, you know, even Japanese books um, where a protagonist it goes from the countryside to the city. Uh-huh. So there's a book called Sanjiro by uh, Natsume Soseki. Um, and then you've got like Norwegian Wood by Murakami, which is also about a guy from Kansai who goes up to Tokyo for university. Mm-hmm. Um, and even David Mitchell's Number Nine Dream, a fantastic book, um, is about a, a young boy from um, a small island called Yakushima, and he goes up to Tokyo. And I just thought, actually, I want to reverse that trope. I want to explore what it would be like for someone from the city to go to the countryside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's great, and something that you can explore. So yeah. obviously, you you it's obvious just from speaking to you, but I, again, looking your um, bio as well is that japan and the whole japanese culture and everything else is something that you're really enamored with so tell us a little bit about where that came from and why you've got you feel like you've got such an an affinity with it yeah so um i I originally so i did i I did my undergraduate and, and master's degree in english literature and i was thinking about doing a phd um and that PhD was going to be on Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales. And 
um i remember my professor at the time just saying you know don't rush into it like why don't, why don't you take a break why don't why don't you go do something mm-hmm. and i said to him i think i said oh you know i feel maybe maybe i'll go abroad and teach english or something he was like yeah why don't, why don't you do that for a year mm-hmm. so i originally went to japan on the jet program and i was only going to go for one year and i, I really didn't it, you know a lot of people tend to have a reason why they go to japan mm-hmm. um, usually it's like manga anime or even literature or something like that but for me it was really just um i knew i wanted to be a writer i knew i wanted to go somewhere um learn a, uh, about a different culture learn a language um, but i really ended up getting sidetracked and falling in love with japan and um yeah i mean i just loved the culture and i really enjoyed studying the language so i ended up studying the language and getting um qualifications to be a translator and interpreter and then that sent me down a path of working for different japanese companies doing you know translation interpretation kind of thing um and it wasn't until i was working for a company in tokyo that i suddenly realized that i hadn't i i'd become sidetracked you know that i wanted yeah. to be a writer and and basically i'd ended up being a translator which there's nothing wrong with that but it wasn't what i set out to do uh-huh. um and so that kind of prompted me um to come back to the uk because I, I i got a place to do um creative writing at, at uea on their ma there and so yeah so i came back um yeah and i suppose i've kept in touch with japan like through the academic community so i did a phd um and uh so yeah, I still feel in touch with it, I suppose, in academic circles, but um, particularly with COVID, I haven't been able to get back there. Um, yeah, really. yeah. Sorry, Wayne, have you have you been to Japan? I haven't, no. It's somewhere I'd like to go. Yeah, no, yeah, you, you, you've got to go. It's awesome. Yeah, everybody says that. It sort of it's, looks like it. it's not like anywhere else in the world sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the impression that I've always got from people that visited. So, yeah. so as you say so you fell in love with it. you became a translator which as you say is some is a pretty big sidetrack considering you were doing english literature originally before mm. you went over there and and so when you first sat down to think when you sort of thought right i'm going to write a novel or i'm going to have a crack at writing a novel was the first thing that came out that was it the cat in the city or was it something else were you immediately writing about japan and your experiences yeah that so i I, I initially, I mean, I, I, I probably you've, you've spoken to so many writers, you've probably heard quite similar stories to this. But I, um, I think in my early twenties, I would write, I would have ideas for novels, and I'd get about twenty thousand words in, and that seemed to me to be the the barrier, and I would lose interest and I would stop. Uh-huh. Um, so I must have done that about five times in my twenties, um, and you know, in between that, I, I wrote short stories and just sort of filed those away but I, I never really had any confidence in what I was doing and um I I think you know I would send stuff to friends but then you know you, you show something to a friend and they go yeah yeah I really like it <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it doesn't really help you in in your growth so no. for me I think I had to do a creative writing program um to just to get some kind of feedback or affirmation um, yeah yeah so for me, I what I remember exactly what happened was, I I got accepted to the MA. I was about thirty thousand words into a a novel set in Japan. Um, as soon as I got accepted, I 
did this mad burst and wrote a whole novel. So that was about a hundred thousand odd words. And then I started um on the on the creative writing I made at UEA. Mm-hmm. And I remember um talking to a couple of the different um lecturers there and, and just saying, look, I've I've written this manuscript, what should I do with it? And all of them said, put it away, put it aside, do the course, do you know, experiment, try different things. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the course, you'll look at what you you wrote and you'll probably realize that you've improved. Um so I did I listened to them, I did what they said. Um but because I'd just written a whole book set in Japan, I remember I for my first workshop at UEA, I, I wrote this I wanted to write this sci-fi cult novel. Right. <laughs> and I wrote I wrote five thousand words of that and put it in for my first workshop. And I could just kind of tell from the workshop that everyone was kind of yeah, hmm, okay. <laughs> and um it, it just was very lukewarm. And um, but then I remember talking to the, my workshop leader afterwards in a tutorial, and and, and he said, it, you know, he was just asking me about my life, and and then I started talking about everything I'd done in Japan, and he he said, well, why aren't you writing about this? And I I I didn't I was kind of dragging my heels a bit. I was like, I don't want to write about Japan, but I yeah. put in a, a story which ended up being the sort of the the, the genesis of the Cat in the City. Um, and just the response to it was overwhelming. I, I thought, oh, you know, this is what I should be doing. Um, I should, I should be writing about Japan. Your first instincts were correct. Yeah, yeah. I and I, I get this because I, I teach creative writing now, and I get this a lot with my students. That the thing they often have this thing that they should be writing about, but they kind of refuse to. Uh-huh. Um, and sometimes, like we don't know what's good for ourselves when it comes to writing. We you know we think we want to do this, but Actually, there's something else that's far, far more resonant that we should be writing. I think um, as yeah, I think you're right. And I think sometimes, though, I mean, speaking from personal experience, I think sometimes the difficulty initially is that it's one of those things where it's difficult sometimes to step outside of your life and your experience and kind of turn a cold eye on it and sort of see what might be interesting out of it, whether that's your personal experiences or somewhere that you've been or something you've done and try to see it from the point of view of now this is actually really interesting to other people or it could this element could be really interesting or that's something unique that you've got to say and I think sometimes it's difficult to pin that down isn't it initially yeah exactly exactly um I think particularly for people who are just sort of writing in isolation it's really difficult to kind of gauge the effect that you're having yeah Um, and I, I often think you know you know, when we're sitting around in the pub and telling each other stories, we can we have that real time reaction. Yeah, um, you can you can tell when you're telling a good story because and you can adjust. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think in some ways that's the creative writing workshop puts you in the pub for a bit. You know, you have people who are kind of giving you real time reactions to what you're working on, and it can it allows you the you know the ability to 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 adjust and to sort of tweak and. And find that thing that's resonating with with readers, um, rather and as you say, rather than just that thing that you kind of feel like you you want to write. Yeah, definitely. I think it's why critique groups in general are so important. Yeah, yeah. So, so you obviously the Cat in the City made a big impact. It was selected as a pick for the BBC Radio Two Book Club, amongst other things. And then, I mean, did that create kind of pressure? for you when you were right i mean you've already said that you wrote another book and obviously it didn't it didn't pan out mm. 
when you were writing that second book before you kind of got to the point where you know it got rejected or whatever how did you feel when you were writing that did you feel the pressure of that successful first book or did you just crack on and not worry about it is there anything that changed in the process I'd, I'd say between the first and the second, but really, I guess it's between the first and the third book, really, because you had that one in between that didn't quite make it. Yeah, I mean, what well, I suppose on paper, in terms of completed manuscripts, The Cat in the City would be my second book. Yeah. And yeah, Four Seasons in Japan would be my fourth. Yeah. Because um, the first and the third, yeah, didn't. Um, I definitely, yeah, I think with The Cat in the City, I really wasn't expecting anything. Um, it's almost like all my expectations were inverted. Um, it was a very weird time for everyone because, you know, w- when when that book got published, I had no idea that bookshops would be closed. I had no idea we'd all be locked away, isolated. Yeah. Um, and I had no idea that the Tokyo 2020 Olympics would be postponed or, you know, there was yeah. a point where it was, you know, are they going to be cancelled or... Mm-hmm. Um, so everything I kind of expected, which was that I would have like a little book launch, everyone would go to the pub, they'd sell like 30 copies, and then that would be that. Um, it, it, it really was kind of inverted, um, in, in, which was lovely, but then it was also, a, it was a strange time to be having something lovely happening. Um, but yeah, in answer to your original question, though, it, I think writing this one, yeah, a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure, mainly coming from not wanting to disappoint people who enjoyed the first book mm-hmm. um, because I, I mean, I just, the, the, the messages I get from readers online, it's just so heartwarming, but then there's another side of me that feels if someone really enjoyed the first one and then they pick up the second, you know, that if they're disappointed by it, it's, it's my fault. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, so yeah, that pressure could, you know, it's quite debilitating, really. Um, yeah. And and I noticed, because I, I haven't been able to uh, read either book yet, but they both sound great, but I noticed that you talked about Flo, who's in both books. Mm. So uh, was Flo in the book that didn't make it as well? Was it always, would you think of this as a series or is it just a case of it's the same character pops up in both books? Yeah, I, I really love writers who, who kind of revisit um characters like you know like i suppose lots of people do it but balzac or like david mitchell mm-hmm. i really love um this this idea of of you know for me i think i call it i nickname it the Nekoverse, which is like the you know neko is cat in japanese so it's like this universe where where all of my characters kind of live and this idea that i can go back and they're still they're still living and i can see where they are and what they're doing um but I, I was really, really conscious that with this second book that I wanted to write it so if someone did pick it up, that they they wouldn't need to know anything about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. That it would work in isolation, but that it had those kind of little connections. Because I think the first book is is really about connections. And I think a lot of the fun with the first book is you get to see all these characters who are linked in, in some way and they pop up here and there. and and I think that in itself is like a fun thing for readers. Um, yeah. I remember when I was reading, um, I think uh, probably like, you know, early David Mitchell. I remember the first time I saw um, one of his characters from another book pop up. It really, I, I, I just thought I was the, you know, 
a genius for finding that. There's that <laughs> yeah. sense of, yeah. of, I know who this is, you know. And oh, like, people love it. I mean, even in things like Quentin Tarantino's universe, yeah. you know, different films and things, you'll hear like a a smaller a side character or something pops up in the, you know, in just in some dialogue or something, and everybody, you know, jumps on it, yeah. and tries to fill in the uh, the gaps in the timeline and things. So and I think I think that's great. I think I think with with the with Four Seasons in 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 Japan as well. Um, the book I wrote before, I think it, it had it had some connections to the first, but I think the reason why Flo came back for the second one was that I wrote I wrote the book within a book first, um, and then I put it aside and I came back to it, and I just got this strange sensation when I read it that that it couldn't have been written by me, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, I it, I read it and I just thought this doesn't sound like it was written by a British man. It sounds like it was written by a Japanese person it, it, mm-hmm. it sounds like it was translated yeah um, and so that got me thinking about flow again i thought oh wouldn't wouldn't this be interesting if if flow had translated this and that someone else had written it and you know it got my mind um kind of spinning and going off in different directions and i did i tried different framing devices um but they kind of weren't working i had lots of footnotes at one point uh, there were like two characters in footnotes. I had to strip that out. Um, so, but the, the the book within a book remains kind of mildly, it pretty much unchanged from its first draft. Um, but it was the framing device, I think, that took a while to work out. You know. That's great, though, having had, because I was going to ask you that about the actual writing of it. So you had, you essentially wrote the book within a book first. Mm. So you had that, and then that enabled you to weave the flow bits in and out and piece it together because sometimes you know people approach these things in different ways sometimes literally people write it in fragments and they'll you know they'll just bolt the whole thing together but doing it that way around did you find it a bit bit easier to do it like that yeah absolutely um we, especially with the novel within a novel um i think yeah I, I just sort of i think it took me a couple of months i just sort of sat down and from start to finish just wrote seventy thousand words of this novel and originally that was going to be the book um and i think i think honestly i think my editor would have just let me publish it as it was but i think i continued to tinker with it and i continued to you know um to sort of situate that novel within uh, i think yeah and i think the idea it was a nice idea and i just kind of kept kept developing it um yeah the it i think I think I needed to do the whole thing from start to finish um, in terms of the the book within a book because I had a little bit of a, a chip on my shoulder, I suppose, with the first book because um, because that book is like a kind of fractured short story collection. You know, it's it's one of those books that's I, I think it's a novel, but some people might say, "Oh, this is short stories." Um, You're linking it from one to another. Yeah, yeah. So I I, I think it it is very much a novel, but I think for me that that act of sitting down and writing the whole seventy thousand words in one go was a kind of trying to prove to myself, no, no, this is a novel. I'm writing a novel. I'm not a short story writer. That's that's not what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> which yeah. is more a kind of personal, um, yeah, a weird kind of stubborn thing where I was trying to prove something. Well, myself. it's a good. It's a kind of a good way of you know tricking yourself into writing it, isn't it? Because yeah. I think we all need like mental tricks sometimes to get us it's it's really hard to sustain writing 
you know, 90,000, 100,000 word plus novels as it is. So I think you, all the kind of mental tricks you can employ, the better, really. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And you've mentioned there a couple of times that's kind of come in is uh, cats. Obviously, there's the cat in the city that's in the title there. And as you say, the cat kind of links the stories together. And I noticed there's a cat on the front cover of um, Four Seasons in Japan. So what is it about cats that you particularly uh, love? Why Why cats? My cat. Um, yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, I think, yeah, it gets it gets difficult to to work out for me because, um, like, so I mean, I grew up in a house household full of dogs, um, and I th- I think you know, I, I I don't really class myself as a cat person or a dog person. I I, I like animals in general, um, but I think that the thing with cats in writing though, um. There's one side of it, which is that when I moved to Japan, the first thing I did as a, as a student of English literature was um, that I just read as much Japanese literature as I could get my hands on in translation. And I just saw over and over again the recurrence of cats in literature, you know, um, even even like um, stuff that was sort of early 20th century. Um, th- there's just been this long tradition of cats in literature. Um, which I, I I ended up writing my PhD on um, cats in Japanese literature, um, the the critical side of my PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, so which I won't I won't go into depth about because for <laughs> you. But um, it got me thinking though um, about cats as as this kind of like I not not to be too corny, but um, when I was doing my PhD, I came up with this idea of you know in in European literature we have the pathetic fallacy. Mm-hmm. Um, where where the the um, the weather mirrors the emotions of, of the characters. Yeah. But in Japanese literature, you get this thing which I which I called um, the perthetic fallacy. <laughs> oh, very good. Which is <laughs> which is where <laughs> sorry, um, where where the the behavior of the cats is mirroring the um, emotions of the characters, and and this you see this quite quite often in, in Japanese literature. If a character uh, if a character dies or disappears then the cat will go missing um as a kind of reflection of of what's going on emotionally in the story um so and of course you know i I was a big fan of murakami and murakami's like huge on cats um but i think also just practically speaking when i lived in japan there just are stray cats on the street everywhere and i think as as being you know um, this weird foreigner, this non-Japanese person, who, who's just in 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 a you know really immersed in 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 a world of of Japanese people and Japanese culture. I don't know why, but I just felt this weird affinity towards the cats because they looked at me not as a foreigner, not as a you know you're like, another outsider like they are. Exactly, yeah. So I I don't know why, but I just start, started to feel drawn towards them, and in lots of the things that i tried to write set in japan i don't know why but a cat always would appear and yeah i mean the cat appeared in that first story i wrote for the cat in the city which was a story that comes quite quite far into the book but i i just started to think you know cats witness so many things in you know in a city like tokyo um they, they see all these things that humans try to hide from each other and just that thought alone um, got me thinking about how how a cat could 
could be a useful linking device for, for all sorts of human dramas. Yeah, so it's, it's as you say, it's a it's a great idea. It's a great setup. I think I, I mean I love cats. I, I don't get me wrong. I don't mind dogs as well. I, I like animals like you, but I've got a cat. But I think one of the things I like about cats is, unlike a dog, a dog you know, they, they cannot hide their feelings at all. Everything is on the surface with a dog. You know, mm. you know exactly what they're feeling, whether they're happy, they're sad, whether they're glad to see you or whatever. With a cat, there's always that element of mystery. You know, you never, you're never quite sure what the cat's thinking, what they're going to do next. You know, I mean, my, if, you know, my cat is, seems perfectly happy. You're, you know, um, stroking him or whatever and he seems really really happy and then for no apparent reason he's just like no i've had enough of that and he'll bite you so um but it seems to come out of nowhere but i think that's one of the things i mean that's one of the things people hate about cats but i think that's what i like about them yeah i mean i I, i've got two cats um now i i had a a cat previously who the the cat in the city cat was based on pansy but she passed away but um we adopted two cats um a year or so ago and um i've i've written them into four seasons in japan um so but yeah i no i mean i i love cats and one one of the things that i've definitely noticed now i'm a cat owner is for a dog to give you affection is like such a low bar yeah totally yeah <laughs> totally to to really get like a bond with a cat you know mm. uh, the affection between a cat and and, and the cat that you know yeah i really think that there's something far deeper in that um you know dogs dogs just love to see you all the time whereas yeah. cats really have to earn, you have to earn trust and you it, really do yeah 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 i totally agree uh i mean there'll be there'll be people now dog lovers literally screaming at the you know at this podcast at the sound of this <laughs> but <laughs> well, I- the I don't hate. know. My my response to it is always though it it's like the it's like that weird question when people say, "Do you like kids?" And you think, "Well, I like <laughs> like nice children. Yeah, yeah. I don't really like ones who aren't very nice." And and yeah, I feel yeah. the same way with the question of like, "Do you prefer cats or dogs?" Yeah, there are bad dogs and there are bad cats. Definitely, um, and there are you know there are good dogs and good cats. And, same as with people, yeah. you can't say that you love all exactly. people. Unfortunately. <laughs> They're they're no different, you know. Everybody's everybody's unique. Humans, yeah, dogs, and cats, and, and and you know included. So, in terms of your writing now, so how do you actually fit your writing around real life? If you like, have you got kind of a set process? Have you got a set time and place and everything else that you do it, or do you just have to fit it in as and when? Um. So I so I'm working on uh, something new at the moment. Um. I I. What I tend to do is I'll get up. Um, I don't know. Early, early is um... <laughs> subjective. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I'll get up early for me, and <laughs> and I'll, I'll I'll leave the house before the I crack can. of noon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll leave the house as fast as I can, and I'll go out to a cafe, and I'll sit and I'll write until roughly until kind of like late late morning. Uh, before lunch, uh, and then I'll take a break for lunch, and and that's me done for writing for the day. Um, so yeah, I'm a morning writer, and I have I have to sort of go straight from that weird dreamlike state of just having woken up mm-hmm. into into writing. Um, 
Yeah, so that's that's and, what, and what's kind of a good day for you in terms of do you think of it's a certain amount of words? Is it you've written a scene that you wanted to tackle? Is how do you look at it? Yeah, that's that's a good one. Uh, so I always bore my students with this. Um, I I so everyone kind of talks about like a word count, um, but actually what I do is I set myself a word limit. Um, right, interesting. So yeah, I say. What I do is I say I need to, so I usually work on one chapter a week, and I say that on Sunday I'll have finished this chapter, and I'll have it to a level that I would be happy sending it to a workshop with mm-hmm. a bunch of people who hated me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so a level that I feel proud of, um, and it'll be five thousand words. So my my whole thing is is that I could write two thousand words on one day. I could write three thousand on another day, and then I'd spend the rest of the week polishing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that Sunday, I'd have to move on to the next chapter. Um, so that's that's the way I work. I instead of saying you know I have to hit five hundred words or I have to hit thousand words each day. For me, it's more like I have to sit down and put in the time. You yeah. have to be with the manuscript, or not the manuscript, the chapter. Yeah. When I'm writing a first draft, I, I put everything else out, uh, out, out of mind. So, because I think people who work in one document, they're at risk of having to edit other things, you know, or they'll, mm-hmm. they'll start seeing things and think, oh, I've got to change this or change that. But for me, I, I start a new document each Monday. Um, and yeah, I, I could spend, three days writing and then two days editing or whatever. Um, and so you edit as you go along, do you? I do with the chapter. Yeah, I do with the chapter. It's just, just because I want to make sure it's, it's solid. Um, so that when I put it all together, um, it's, it's not going to be ropey. It, you know, I, the, I think I learned this from writing my first book, but with my first book, I, I concentrated on each chapter and made sure it was as solid as possible. And then after I finished, I put I, I look at look at it like making a brick. So mm-hmm. writing the chapters like making the brick, and you make sure that it's tough, consistent, and then you put it away. And then after time, you've got sort of like fifteen to twenty bricks, mm-hmm. and you say, okay, well, what can I build from this? And then you start arranging it. And the, you know you're on pretty solid ground, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I mean, that's that's the way that's the way I work. Um, because I, I can write very quickly, but the problem with that is then the quality drops. Mm-hmm. So for me, I think it's more about slowing down um, than encouraging myself to speed up. And do you tend to outline before or do you just go for it? Um, I have the... So I, I like to think of it like going for a walk or something where I look at that church spire in, on the horizon. I think I'm going to head in that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if if I'm going along and I see something interesting, then I'll 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 stop and, and I might go oh I'll go down this route instead of that one. Um, so I think I think I, I for me I think it's always important to be flexible. Mm-hmm. You know I I don't um, I'm not someone who's like plotting um, everything in advance because I think then I, then it wouldn't be as fun. Um, sure. But I do have a rough idea of where I want to get to. Um, but I also allow myself to change because, I mean, that was one thing 
that was one big i think important like whenever you're writing you kind of learn these important lessons yes yeah. it's like one aspect of writing um but i think one of the important things that i learned early on was just because you set out to write this and you didn't achieve that thing that you set out to achieve doesn't mean that you haven't achieved something better mm-hmm. um you know th- this idea that you have to materialize that that idea in your mind it has to be perfectly it, I, I think it can it can be disappointing for people because you might set out to write i don't know like a heist story mm-hmm. with elves or something you might end up with i don't know a a historical novel with goblins and it, it it doesn't matter you know it it doesn't matter like what matters is the thing that you produce not whether you achieved what you originally set out to do i think i think you're right and i think the danger as well with that sometimes is i mean i've definitely been guilty of it at times is when i have come up with uh what i think is oh yeah this will definitely work you know in advance i've got an idea for the how the plot could go or whatever mm. um is then it's it's often really, really difficult to pull yourself away from it, even when you feel it in your bones as you're heading towards this thing and you're trying to push everything in this direction that this is not quite right or the the character wouldn't do this or this doesn't feel real or whatever it is. Even as you know that, there's this thing that's making you do it because you think, well, I can't deviate it because if I do this now, the whole plan is ripped to shreds and where will i be then and i won't know where i'm going and all the rest of it so i think it can affect you like that as well can it definitely can for me yeah yeah no definitely i I was just thinking about something funny that happened when i was writing four seasons in japan Mm because you know you know some writers are sort of saying well you know you know it's good when your characters take over and yeah yeah okay so (laughs) i remember i was writing a scene and my character did something that surprised me and I went away feeling really pleased with myself. <laughs> but then when I showed people the manuscript, everyone hated that thing. They absolutely hated that moment. They were like, I hated it when she did that thing. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, maybe it was completely out of character. So I went back and edited it. Uh, <laughs> they like, you know, even those, those sort of, I don't know, those aphorisms or those ideas that are perpetuated yeah. in creative writing can be harmful because yeah. we start to we start to place the idea above the the actual thing that we have in front of us. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And these way, and that goes, as you say, that can come back to sometimes thinking about you need to do so many words or yeah. this is a successful day and this is not a successful day. Um, I think you're right. You, you know, I mean, let's be honest, we're all really, really fragile when we're doing these. Well, we're all really fragile anyway. I think most creative people are, but I think mm-hmm. when you're actually in the midst of a, a project you're really really fragile and you're kind of almost looking for reason i i sort of liken it to running or something like that running a long distance you know you're always looking for reasons to stop you know when you're out on a long run your body's saying why are you doing this this is really painful uh i'm out of breath please can we just stop now you know your brain's telling you that the whole time and it's very easy to find reasons to stop and i think it's a bit like that when you're writing a novel sometimes yeah yeah nice spot on absolutely we're quite quite fragile with it so when you when you did your you went back after you'd done you um you stint in japan and then you you was was it a master's you said that you came back to do yes um in creative writing was it yeah so when you did that was it a year was it you did that yeah so you did that for a year 
thinking back now, what would you say is the main thing that sticks out of that, that you kind of got out of that year? Or what was the main thing that you kind of picked up over the course of the year? Was there something that kind of sticks out when you think about that time? You thought, oh, that was really, really helpful. Something I picked up at the time as regards your creative writing and where you were with it. Oh gosh. It's, it's some like, it was so many things. It will be quite difficult to distill down um, into a single thing. Well, that's okay. What, what were some of the things? Some of the things. Yeah. I think one thing that I really that I really took away from it was that that hard work is more important than talent. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like that it doesn't really matter how talented you are in, in you know when it comes to writing. It mm-hmm. it matters how how much you're willing to work and to take setbacks and to take knockbacks. Um, and that often I think with you, you're, you're completely right about the the running thing. Um, I I really agree with you. I, I, have you read Murakami's What I Talk About When I Talk About Running? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, that that you you reminded me of that when you were talking about it. But I think absolutely, like um, it, it, you can be extremely talented as a writer, and I think uh, you know in you know, society tends to put talent on a pedestal and say that that's really important, you know, and that it's always gifted people or talented people who do well in, in the arts. But I, I, I disagree. I think, I think it's people who work hard and people like, like Stephen King says, you know, amateurs sit around, wait for inspiration, the professionals turn up and do the work. I, mm-hmm. I agree. I just think if, if, if you're going to let someone saying no to you prevent you from doing it, then, then that's it, you know? yeah really you have to just you have to keep working you have to keep so if someone does say no you work out why they're saying no and and get around it and so i think that's one thing i I took away from the course um what's another one um i suppose yeah earlier we were talking about it but sometimes we don't know what what's best for ourselves when it comes to writing yeah i took that away from it um i took away from like just meeting with lots and lots of different people who recommended great things to me that really enriched um you know my my own take on literature um just uh, yeah i mean there's so much so much great exchange of information amongst you know peers and i think that's what's really good about creative writing um studying it at a master's level is is that a lot of it you're not really learning from the lecturers you're learning from each other um and yeah i mean just oh gosh yeah i mean i probably i probably would just talk and talk about how much i learned that year there's definitely something you'd recommend to other people though oh absolutely i think you know some people don't need it and they can just work and 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 they can get published and and that's great but i think for someone like me um i think I, i definitely needed that it was like a catalyst it was um just really really helped accelerate me in terms of writing and And it uh, sounds like it was just you just enjoyed it anyway and that's kind of worth doing it just from that basis it sounds like absolutely i mean i think it it helped that i was coming back i was you know when i was thinking well you know when i was thinking oh you know i'm sitting around at university i'm talking about literature and i'm talking about writing for me that was just absolutely amazing i couldn't believe my luck Mm -hmm. Uh, 
because I'd been sitting in an office in Tokyo translating um, really, really dull things each day, you know, just doing that kind of boring office job Uh and working extremely long hours in Tokyo. So for me, it was, it was like liberating to come back to the UK and to, and to, 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 you know, to think more about literature again. Um, Yeah. Fantastic. Well, as we kind of move towards wrapping things up, if you were starting again tomorrow, your career as a writer, what, what, if anything, would you do differently or what would you go back and tell your younger self? Oh, I would definitely tell my younger self to get going and to not be so precious and to work harder and to put in more, more hours. But then I don't know though. It's a difficult one because I feel like I learned so much from, I mean, even though I was a prat in my twenties, you know? <laughs> everybody is, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's part of the course. Yeah. I feel like no- nothing would have changed me from doing what I did. And, and I think I learned a lot from, I, I mean, I learned a lot from my failures and from all the things, you know, all the times I messed up. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I suppose I could, cause I wonder sometimes, like I think I, pu- I published my first book at 37 and that's, probably a bit older than I would have liked to. I would have liked to have published in my early 20s, but I really wasn't putting the time in. I wasn't doing the work. I was reading a lot, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I was writing short stories and things, but I wasn't putting as much hard work in into writing as I do now. This came up in the last interview that I recorded, actually, something very similar about writing in your 20s. Yeah. The other thing is, is that I'm not sure how much, there's not that many people, I'm sure, I know that there are exceptions, but I don't think there are that many people that have got that much to say in their twenties. That's the other thing. I don't think they've probably lived enough life and experienced enough stuff to have something really interesting to say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult to say. I know me in my twenties. I didn't. <laughs> no, I definitely didn't. Know. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think though, I, I do feel at times now though, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like, Oh, you know, I've, I've turned 40 I'm, I'm 41 this year I, I just hope I can get 10 books out before before I die that that would be good that's good that's good it's a good goal to have I'm sure that you'll easily achieve it I'm confident <laughs> two down surely yeah yeah <laughs> okay well as we wrap up things why don't you just uh, remind people where they can find the new book and uh tell people where they can find out more about you yeah so um so the book four seasons in japan i think it's uh, in all good bookstores um and yeah wherever you like to buy your books um and you can find me online i'm on instagram and twitter um my this this was a mistake but my (laughs) My handle is um, nasubijutsu, which is N-A-S-U-B-I-J-U-T-S-U. And it's the same on, on both. But my website is um, nickbradleywriter.com, which is probably easier. And then you can click through. And find all the things, all yeah. the links on there. Well, I'll yeah. make sure I put all of those links in the show notes over at joinedupwriting.co.uk. But for now, thanks a million for joining me, Nick. It's been great to chat to you. Oh, the pleasure's been mine, Wayne. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. Up 
There you go. Thanks again to Nick. And I'll put all of his links in the show notes over at joinedupwriting.co.uk. That's it for this week. Other than me reminding you to make sure you subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast or wherever else you get your podcasts from. And that way you can have the podcast downloaded automatically every week. Also remember to leave us a nice rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else because it does help other people find the show. And, uh, you know, keep recommending it to your friends. That would be magnificent. Anyway, that's it for this week, but thanks for listening. I'm Wayne Kelly. Happy writing, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.